we were in negotiations for investing in real estate. They're winning, they're making money. What's up everyone? Welcome to the Real Estate Educators Podcast. We provide the education you can build on. I am your host, Kevin Amos. I have a fantastic guest with me today. See, we focus a lot on this on this podcast on helping real estate investors and helping real estate educators. And what I want to do today is go into a little bit more detail on the Federal Reserve, the, the problems with Wall Street, how we can help you make more money, um, not necessarily just in real estate, but what about the demographics changing and inflation problems and all this stuff that we're all worried about. So I brought a very special guest on today, Mr. Nick D'Angelo. Nick, so you've $200 million, I think you're considered or called or also known, aka the fixed income goat. Uh, you started uh, Saint Investments and sounds like you're, you and I have a lot in common. Like I mentioned right before we hit record here, you're on track to raise, what is it? $100 million annually with your institution there. So we have a lot we could talk about, man. Welcome to the show. Kevin, I appreciate it. Yeah. It was great catching up with you. You know, it sounds like we have a lot in common in a lot of different areas. So I'm really excited to dive in. You hit the nail on the head. Saint Investment Group. We uh, we crossed the 206 million in assets under management. Been a long road that's taken us a lot of places, but I'm really excited for where we're at today, uh, where we're going, and really where the market's at. I mean, I guess I'm one of the few people that's super optimistic about whether it goes up, down, or you know whatever. I think there's huge opportunities for people that are prepared and uh, are diving into the learning side of things. Okay, I would, I'm dying to get into that. But first, I want to hear a little bit more about your story. So take me back. How did you start Saint? What even got you in, interested in investing in real estate? Oh, my gosh. I So that's a pretty, pa that's a passion question. So that's a passion question. Um, I was blessed to be around uh, early, you know, I was, I was blessed to be around entrepreneurs from a whole range of different backgrounds in my family. They're Italian immigrants. So everything from my grandfather, my dad's generation, my uncles, I saw all these different businesses. I saw guys make a lot of money. I saw guys lose a lot of money. I saw people do different things once they made their money. Right. And so as a young man or as a young kid, really, I saw who was making the best decisions with chunks of investments and it was just so clear that real estate was the winner at such an early age. And on my side, I said, well, if I'm seeing this now, right, I could go start this business or go do that or whatever. How do I get close to the biggest dollars possible, whatever I got to do to get there? So I leaned into that very heavily. I, I worked for a lot of people for free. Eventually, that path took me to um a opportunity to meet people that had a lot more money and i basically bartered my way into work for free for a family office a very small family office but third generation real estate so uh small uh desk count if you will but extremely dialed in on systems and understood real estate up down sideways back and forth i got to absorb a lot of that i got to bring new views and new talent into that and help them change some systems for uh, kind of newer strategies. And so I got to leave just a small mark on something that was multi-generational. And from what I learned there, I really was able to lean into the wake of the Great Recession. And we went on a buying spree on acquisitions up to 10 million a week of distressed assets. So 
Um, it's been a long road since then, but uh, those were that was the genesis of everything. Was I stand on the shoulders of people that provided examples of what to do and what not to do. I went towards the best opportunities that I saw in front of me, which were people killing it in real estate. And then I just said, how many zeros can we add to that? Is the short, short, short story to that. And uh, I learned a lot from amazing mentors. And then we started Saint Investment Group in 2015 to open up what we were doing to outside investors. And uh, in the last 12 months, we crossed 206 million in assets under management between uh, hard assets and um, our Saint Income Fund, which just pays a fixed set return to investors. And it has a lot more flexibility than kind of our old syndication model. Wow, that's really cool. So you got into interested in real estate so young. And you didn't say it was because of Rich Dad Poor Dad. So many people tell me, what's oh, this book that I have? Great book, to be fair. Great book, but no, <laughs> that, that's not what got me into got me into real estate. Yeah. So when you're going through that recession, um, I was living it, man. I had a I had 50, uh, about 55, I think it's 55, maybe 56 single family homes when I entered that. Um, so I was right in it. You were working for another institution that had a lot of assets, it sounds like, pretty prepared to go into that. Uh, so you saw both sides, like the pain, but you also saw the opportunity. Um, how old, just curious, how old were you at, at that time? Because oh, you look so young. I, I was a young man. I was a young man. I, so I started real estate when I was 15, technically, and it was helping uh, kind of high net worth friends and family do marketing. So I just was like, I can figure out this marketing okay. thing. So that's the only value I can add. I don't know spreadsheets at that time. I didn't know, I didn't know a whole lot of anything in real estate, but I was like, I'm explaining to them what, you know, Craigslist was back then, right? So that's how that dates me around that era. So I was like early 20s in the wake of the global financial crisis. And I was leaning into that heavily with all the energy in the world. Uh, you know, I was super broke. So it's really easy to be motivated when you're eating protein shakes for every meal. And then um, I want, I had something to prove. I had a chip on my shoulder that was really big. Because I knew that these were the people I wanted to be around and I, I wanted to absorb everything I could. I was reading, you know, multiple books a week in finance and strategy and portfolio management just to even be able to have conversations. But uh, early 20s was when I really leaned into that, uh, the global financial crisis side. I mean, I was, I think, 21. I had about $10 million in my coat pocket of uh, cashier's checks. And it was me and a bunch of sharks up a, in a, on the courthouse steps, bidding on properties, bidding on all that. I'm negotiating with the bank on the side. I'm doing that. So it was, I was weighing over my head, but I was like, I will, I'll die on this hill. I'd rather die than not show up. And so I went all in a hundred percent. Dude, you should be so proud of yourself. So you're, and you're still young and now you're over 200 million Um so we have about 160 million and we've been doing it since 2008. I started this company in 2008. So you, you've surpassed me in, in a compressed amount of time. So kudos to you, man. What what makes you different than maybe someone else that wants to do it and never actually does? So I think, I, honestly, it's goals and it's scale, right? For me, it's I my eyes are always bigger than my stomach in the sense that I'm, I just want to see what the real, real, real impact I can have on the world and my family and the things that are most important to me. That has a lot of zeros behind it, admittedly. So that pulls me. It's kind of the passion project that pulls me. And then what pushes me is 
Um, I have a lot of pride in my family. I have a lot of pride in people that came before me. And, um, you know, I want to leave that mark and, and surpass people. Like, just like I have three sons, Kevin, which is insane. And, uh, you know, it's pretty wild at home. But I want them to beat me too, right? I want to set an example of hard work that they see that and that they can take everything that I can give them in the whole world and that they beat me. But um, what I would tell someone starting off is just what is the reason behind what you're doing and really how big do you want to go? I think the really limits that you have are super self-imposed. If you look at how much money is going on right now, I mean, they're just between the entire global investment market is about 80 to 90 trillion dollars of investor pockets, right? The investor pocketbook globally is 90 trillion almost. So if that's the case, there's opportunity enough for like, you know, 200 million is nothing compared to the 10, 12 trillion of the Black Rocks, right? Right. So um, that said, I think there's huge opportunity in real estate. If people are pa really passionate about what they're doing with their careers, I think real estate is the bolt on. I grew up around entrepreneurs. I'm an entrepreneur. I built and sold companies. The best thing I ever did was take the money I was making and put that on real estate on the side. And now I had two or three ways to appreciate money and lean into things. And if the, you know, if the business had ups and downs, peaks and troughs, I had that other income that was supplementing that and providing that more steady income and steady appreciation. So uh, there's a lot of ways to skin the cat. I think the goal is, you know, for people to ask why and how, and I think they can find what they're looking for in real estate 90% of the time. I couldn't agree more. Multiple streams, right? We're, we're always told multiple streams and it sounds like you live that. So you help your investors make money both on that. sounds like you might have a debt fund of some kind and you also do projects yourself. Um, so 200 million, dude, that's a lot. How I'm assuming that, you know, a lot of capital raisers are always educating their, their clients and their, the marketing is the education because you're building trust and, you know, they like you. So can you dig into that just a little bit? Like how, how do you accomplish on the marketing side, 200 million under management? Oh my God. Yeah. So that's, that is a very interesting question that has a lot of iterations, right? So we're part of actually some of the same groups, shout out to EO, right? But uh, part of that blessing of being around that community is seeing very high octane marketing, right? Very sharp marketers, very sharp educators. On our side at Saint, the honest to God truth, we do not have time to charge for education. It is, it is just a, big, uh, a function of time. So we have nothing paid. The only thing we can ever offer people is to invest with us, right? And if like, let's say we can only, we can only work with accredited investors. So if they're not accredited, our goal is to teach them as much as we can to bolster them into accredited status, meaning they're making two to 300 grand a year or a million net worth, right? So on our side at St. we lean into education from a few different angles. Early on, it was very early education finance. It was like how to create a budget, right? What is yeah. NOI for real estate? We have whole foundations, like dozens and dozens and dozens of videos going step-by-step -step on real estate basics. What we found on our side, because again, our job is to educate people to allow them to decide the best investment option for them. What we found was so many people we were talking to were entry level because that's what we were putting out there, right? It was very entry level. And so we helped a lot of people and that was really great. But our real core community of investors are actually really sophisticated and we weren't giving them enough to chew on. So we really went down the rabbit hole of 
uh, niching down aggressively on what we cover. And it's almost exclusively today, super high level economics, super high level geopolitics and how that affects different asset classes, super high level investment strategies that often are, you know, people with, you know, let's say, I don't know, 10, 20, 100 million net worth that have to figure out like, well, should I take down debt to allocate toward, should I take down a 6% debt to allocate towards a 12% fund? Does that make sense? Well, is this debt variable or is it? So we have, we really drill down into these unique, uh, very ultra high net worth scenarios for a lot of it. And then the economics behind it is really more of our focus today. That's how we can give back the most is so that people understand the environment we're in and what to do to maximize their income and their net worth during it. And so you've gotten a lot of value from that. So all your marketing is basically content creation and providing value. And you sounds like you're hyper-focused on add value first. Yeah, we, our database, we spend a lot of time finding the right people. I'll just put it that way. So there's huge amounts of like, where do these people hang out and how can we give them more information? And uh, some of that is absolutely direct marketing of like, look how great we are. By the way, have you seen the products that we can offer to you financially, right? Uh, so the, we are very, very not shy about the fact that we feel best in class and what we do on the fixed income side. But the other side is, let's just get this information out there so that people can make the best investment decisions for themselves. So we host webinars pretty regularly that are live. So we have, the, you know, we have a great community. People will come on very high net worth individuals and be asking questions that 20, 30, 40, 80, 100 other people can hear what those answers are. And it creates just this amazing back and forth that's better than the sum of its parts, right? So those live webinars are big for us, long form YouTubes. Um, and then uh, we we get to hang out with cool people on podcasts and, and really nice. find the fun stuff too. So it sounds like everything, because you wanted to niche down, you wanted to go after that high net worth. So your focus now is a lot on the economy. That's what I heard you say. So you've, a lot of your education is on the economic impact on maybe that class of, you know, investor. And what to do with it. Yes. And what to do with it. So exactly. let's get into that then, man. You, this cool. is a crazy, this is a crazy environment that we're in. Um, I study it constantly because I'm trying to figure it out. And I got to tell you, when you start seeing good news come out, good economic news go out and then stock market crash, then you start getting confused, right? Like, and, and then this one got me. I'm dying. What do you think about this? Hertz, right? During COVID goes bankrupt and the stock price went up. So you say the stock market or Wall Street is broken. That's the perfect example, right? So what do you see on, on more of a macro level going on with like, the inflation and and this fight against it. Yeah, I mean, Wall Street being broken is that we're throwing fundamentals out the window for a decade plus right now. I mean, it's really, truly the, you know, we, we like to think of Warren Buffett as kind of like Uncle Warren and like the, the yardstick of just being financially savvy and financially, you know, conservative and by the book. Warren's sitting on more cash than he ever has by far, right? Because nothing makes sense, even to Warren Buffett. The stock market, what it's supposed to be doing and what we're seeing are two completely, are completely two different things. So as far as inflation, as far as economics, as far as where we're at today, it is a weird time. And so we talked about the global financial crisis. I do love multifamily, but here's an interesting st statistic, Kevin. 
there's been a deeper loss in values for multifamily in 2023 than in the entire global financial crisis. Yep. Property property sure, values yeah. lost around 35 to 40% in multifamily. And the peak loss in the wake of 2008 was 29%. Do you think there's still room to go? Uh, I think there's always variables that could come up. Like, you know, economics is a, it's, you know, it's, it's a variable game. How much, what are the odds that something happens? I think the odds are low that there's more room to go, but I really think it depends on things like rates, how, how, how much Jerome Powell and associates are committed to the rates, how much they're committed to truly squashing inflation, which I think is a discussion on its own. I think we're very far out. We are nowhere near out of the woods on inflation. If you look at any of the true drivers, um, I don't think that means a market crash, but I don't think that means rates are going to take the huge dips that we're talking either. So what does that do to multifamily? I think you're probably have an opportunity to buy at a discount for most asset classes right now. I think multifamily is a privileged asset class, right? It's just so blessed by the government and the financing structures, but I don't think it will have the drivers that it used to, that were just these huge run-ups. So I think it's more of a slow and steady from here uh, for multifamily, but I think there's other big losers and big winners. Office, huge question mark, sure. significant question mark. To me, I am super biased because I'm an industrial investor on the syndication. We do that. That is our asset class chosen. Absolutely. I think that has the highest upside in the next decade. Absolutely. So that's where I'd line up bets as far as commercial goes. Say multifamily, middle of the road, humming along. Biggest loser being office. Biggest winner, I'd probably say industrial. Oh, that's interesting because industrials had a run up. So some people are saying yeah. it might be near the peak and um, office, I think everyone agrees that's the that's the wild card. Um, yeah. Multifamily, there's always financing for it. You said it. Fannie Mae is always willing to look at it, so that holds the oh. values up, right, and compresses cap rates. This this inflation thing, I'm I'm really torn with because, I mean, we have low unemployment, right, and so that's that's what's creating so much confusion. We have wage growth that's almost twice inflation now, so that should create more inflation, you would think. Um, but the PCE number is the one that they look at, right? PCE core, which removes food and energy. If you look at the last, only the six months, if you can isolate it, which we don't do, by the way, yeah. but if you isolated it the last six months, it's at 1.9. So there's some experts out there, Nick, that say they've already won the fight against inflation. The 2% target, we're below that now. And I think, what is it? Almost 3% is the average. So what do you, what do you think about that? Well, so the question is, so you, you bring up one side of it, which I think is really strong. When you lean into the numbers from that side, it's like, well, aren't we there? Haven't we reached the goal? Like we're there, right? The other side of it is, well, we're there with Matt, the biggest rate cuts in history, you know, just behind us, right? We're there because of a lot of different things like that. Unemployment uh, and employment numbers and wage growth. Those are shockingly resilient. It's weird, not, right? Not even resilient. Those are shockingly high performing, right? So uh, th that's an interesting balanced perspective. The other half of it is when you look at, and I'm sure you know this, Kevin, but for the audience, there's something called the Federal Reserve dot plot, right? Yeah. It's a map that the Federal Reserve chair, Powell, you know, Jerome Powell, and then 
the other members of the Federal Reserve Board literally take a dot and they place it on a timeline and they say where they think rates will be at different periods of time. So in the next 12 months, they're saying they're projecting forward that rates will drop 100 basis points, one full percent. Then 12 months thereafter, another full percent reduction, right? So the, you know, inflation, us crushing inflation at a 1.9% number, I think is great. But is that mean, does that mean that the Fed mandate has been reached with those rate hikes that we've already experienced? And the answer seems to be yes. So then if they drop those rates a point or two points, then what happens to inflation? More than likely that seesaw goes back up. Yeah. That's my bet. That's and so when you point, and so that's just me, right? So I, I don't ever want to say that I'm the smartest guy that I've ever met. I always look to bigger, you know, bigger institutions for where they're at. Let's take a look at Howard Marks. Let's take a look at Rick Reader. Let's take, you know, these are guys with trillions under management between them. Um, Bill Ackman. Those are the big three I look for on this topic because they've really drilled down. All three of them are saying that we are going to be dealing with inflation to some degree for 10 to 20 years. All three of them. That's crazy. Do you so know why that is? So the drivers of that are exactly things you've already said, right? We have a generation. And so you said, hey, well, unemployment or, you know, employment, these things are going crazy. How are they so resilient and strong and improving, if anything, right? A lot of that is, well, what's the workforce look like? At the top of the workforce, the oldest age group, the baby boomers. We love them. The biggest demographic we have ever had in the United States by volume and the most wealthy, huge amounts of money, right? They're aging out. They're leaving the workforce. The midpoint of the baby boomers leaving the workforce was, I think, dead center middle of COVID, 2021, 2022, something like that. By the way, inflation was 9.1% in the middle of 2022 as a mile marker. And then so replacing, replacing the baby boomers is Gen Z, the smallest generation we've ever had, right? They're very educated, they're very intelligent, right? But very value very different things and they don't really value work as much. So not only are they significantly smaller of a generation than the baby boomers, but their job participation is much less. So wage growth, wage inflation, right? Well, there's less people. So if there's less of a pool to draw on for employment, then those people can command higher wages, right? So there's all kinds of question marks. I don't pretend to know everything that's going to unfold in that. I would say it'll be a balance of, you know, when, once you lean into work from home, well, you can work from any home. Is that Philippines? Is that Portugal? Is that United States, right? Because if we're dealing with wage increases so heavily, some businesses can and some businesses can't sustain that. So I see some of that going overseas or to other countries and offshoring. But a lot of that, I think, will balance and rebalance in the U.S. and we'll figure out where wage, wages really stand and figure out a balance of, and you know, the Federal Reserve, to their credit, ever since they BSed and told us that um, inflation was transitory, which was the biggest joke ever, yeah. since then, I like, you know, Fed Chair Powell, who's an attorney by trade, not an economist, was very clear saying, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. We are not overcommitting. We're not undercommitting. This is what we're giving you. And so they've shot pretty fair uh, overall with what they have. So that's kind of the lay of the land as I see it. I think we'll be dealing with inflation for a while. 
I think we need to figure out employment a little bit. Right now it's hot, which is good, but well, good and bad. And uh, yeah, I think I don't think rates are going to come down as much as they say. That would be my bet on rates on a two-year scale. This episode is brought to you by Pine Financial Group. Pine Financial is a private lender specializing in short-term rehab lending to real estate investors. Got a property that needs some love? We can help. We are able to offer funding solutions because we raise private money from individual investors. With more than 15 years of experience, Pine offers passive investors an alternative that provides stability, consistency, and security to your portfolio. If you like real estate but want to avoid the ups and downs and effort, a Pine mortgage fund could be a perfect fit for you. Accredited investors will experience an 8% preferred return and profit sharing. Diversify your portfolio out of Wall Street and into Main Street with a Pine Financial Group mortgage fund. Get more information at pinefinancialgroup.com. That's pinefinancialgroup.com. Yeah, and you know, Wall Street has it built in even more than the 100 basis points. So Six this year. They we'll were yeah. budgeting <laughs> six decreases this year in rates. What does that do to the, the value, right? I, yeah. I'm nervous. I'm with you, man. I'm nervous about the stock market. So here's here's an interesting thing I wanted to get your opinion on. Thing. Well, it's an interesting topic I want to get your opinion on. Um, so when, they, when the Fed raises rates, I mean, and they issue debt, which is they do, right, through treasuries, they're hurting them their own self, right? Because the treasury rates are higher and that's the debt that they have to pay the interest on to the point where now it's the biggest Ponzi scheme in the history of Ponzi, right? Because they have to issue debt to pay interest on old debt. That's exactly what's going on. And the interest rate has impacted them so much that I've, I've read that they're $2 trillion behind in 2024 to pay their, just to pay the interest on their debt. So now it's the biggest expense, right? Even, even higher than the military. So that's a concern for me, and I think that's going to that's going to hurt inflation, right? Because when you issue debt, it, it, which is what we saw in COVID, right? Print money and then inflation. So, what, what are your thoughts on on the interest rate impacting their own the own their own selves? Absolutely, yeah. That is such an interesting discussion. That's an hours long economic breakdown. Yeah, there's so many places we can go. You know, it's it's such a good point because they are stuck in between a rock and a hard place. Is the short answer. Right. Because on one side, if you have inflation higher than it's supposed to be, higher than the Fed mandate, it creates an equilibrium. The market gets wonky. Right. On the other end, if they're issuing all this debt at these high rates that they have to pay back, that has its own, you know, end of the runway. Right. They're like they're stuck between this zone and trying to figure out their own balance on it. <sighs> you know, that that's a topic that has I, I just saw these numbers the other day. It's like, you know, it's in the you know, I think billions and like tens and tens of billions, maybe even was it like hundreds of billion? I'm, I'm trying to recall a statistic that I just read on this because it's a really, really good point. I think the impact of rates going up 1%, up or down 1% is something like hundreds of billions of payback by the Federal Reserve. It's a difference of that, right? So it's so impactful when you look at our national debt of 34 trillion and how many poor decisions have went into that. This is what I would say on the heels of all of it is that the, the Fed, I'm sure, is kicking their self, themselves for not issuing a whole bunch of debt at like a zero to two percent rate. Like that would have been really nice to have those uh, pockets stuffed uh, with real cheap interest rates on their money, you know, that they had to uh, expect to pay there. But debt to GDP ratio is a very interesting metric, which is what you're talking about, that now we are paying more 
on our debt. We are, our interest payments on our debt are higher than our GDP can sustain. There's two ways to look at that. And there's the there's the eagle way, super overly pro-US, everything's gold, we're going to be fine, it's going to go on forever. And then there's the doom and gloom side, which is like we're going off a cliff. Fiscally, this is not working. We printed 40% of every dollar ever created during COVID. How can that not have huge effects? Somewhere in the middle is a perspective that I find interesting of we're the global reserve currency. We know that. Right. So we get to cheat across the board financially, like our fiscal policy, our strategies. There's there's things that we build in with overconfidence constantly because of that. But the reality is nobody else in the developed world. Like so our debt, our debt to GDP ratio, I think, is one hundred and seventeen percent, something around there. Uh, the closest we're talking to if we were going to get knocked off of our status as global reserve currency would be China, right? The most recent numbers I saw, their debt, G debt to GDP ratio is 240%. Yeah, it's crazy. Significantly worse than ours. You look at, then you go into the Eurozone, their debt to, G their debt to GDP ratio is significantly worse than ours. In the developed world that we play the category of, you know, the king of the, the hill financially in, uh, in those markets, we're so far ahead of everybody, even with how horrible we're doing or how horrible we're doing at balancing our budgets. We are still so much better off than most of the world. Um, I don't have an answer exactly to your question of where the rock and the hard place ends, where they will say, this is too much, we need to peel back. But I do know that the next, you know, number two to 20 on the list of countries of, that could step up on a, you know, fi uh, financial reserve currency basis, don't even stand a chance. So I am an eagle on that side that, as hard as we're trying to be really bad financially, we need to get our stuff together on this and really drill down onto a, a more balanced budget because if we keep printing all these money at higher rates with higher treasuries and all these things, we will hit a wall there. There is no question of that. Well, China's in real trouble because of, of population control, right? So okay. they don't have enough workers, period. So they, I don't know how they dig themselves out. For us... Our largest living cohort is millennials. So now we're talking about that's the perfect age for first time home buyers, right? 25 ish. Um, so you talked about baby boomers and the impact and the, the generation behind that. But what about millennials? What impact is that going to have? Yeah, I mean, so there's two answers to that. One is millennials value things very differently than so the, just to you know recap generations. Baby boomers, right? Biggest generation, most wealth. Gen X, much smaller, still very sophisticated, very smart. Still got many of the uh, the old world mentalities, and but but slightly newer. You know, they're they're uh, usually up to speed on things like technology. Then you have the millennials, which are the children of the baby boomers. So to your point, Kevin, the millennials are huge generation, right? I'm a millennial. I'm dead center. Actually, I think I'm an elder millennial. Is what they call it. But anyways. Um, so the millennials, huge generation, they really are the wake of the um, baby boomers as far as, you know, um, the children of the baby boomers. But what's weird about millennials is they're in a very strange position because as baby boomers pass, which is unfortunate, they, you know, were a very impactful generation for the U.S. But when the baby boomers pass, they pass on around 72 trillion in net worth 
over the next two decades. So there's a huge, that is the biggest transfer of wealth that we have ever seen in the world, the history of the world. I never even thought about that, Nick. I, I hear like the argument that we have an inventory problem in, in single family housing, right? There's just not enough inventory and that's pretty much across the board. Yep. And then I, I hear, well, we're going to get an inventory influx because um, the baby boomers are starting to move into retirement homes or they're dying off. So they're going to take a unit off the market without replacing it with another unit. So we're supposed to be seeing this big influx of inventory. But what you just said makes me think like all this wealth is going to transfer to their kids, which is a larger cohort right now that are in the prime age for first time home buying which would remove a unit of inventory without putting a unit on. So is the is the baby boomer going into the nursing home argument going to solve our inventory problem? That's a good question. I am I so we invest Saint for our income fund. We invest very heavily into mortgages, into single family mortgages. It is a huge 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 focus of us for us. So that's a good question. My bet on that is, well, I'll tell you the numbers. Let's still get, dig into the exact numbers. 72 trillion go from the baby boomers to the millennials. The average, if you took the whole, you know, this whole spread of how much everybody would take receive from a baby boomer passing, the average is about 350,000. That's estimated to be just mind inherited. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. And that's over the next 20 years. That, that will continue to occur, continue to occur. So what millennials who will absorb most of that wealth from the, the baby boomer generation, what they'll be doing is leaning into whatever is most valuable to them and their, you know, if you look at the Pew, the Pew millennial studies of uh, what millennials value, you'll see a lot, right? You'll see the Pew generational studies. What I would expect to happen is you know, being a millennial right now, having bought multiple homes and done that whole thing, which is probably rare among most millennials that that I experienced, but lifelong real estate, right? So on that side, I think most would lean into home ownership. That would be a bet. I haven't That's what the survey say. Yeah. I haven't scraped these numbers a hundred percent as far as uh, you know, where millennials stand on if they would absorb the home and just, you know, move directly into the home. But what I do know is what we do know very clearly from the real estate market is that existing home sales are, wait, hold on. Let me, let me make sure I phrase this correctly. Only 5% of the market is being traded right now, which is another way of saying what you said earlier, that 90 to 95% of the market is entrenched with low interest rates locked in mostly baby boomers, you know, for the, is the majority of that that have no real interest in selling until they pass. So that's really a 10 to 20 year window of what that looks like for some pretty rock solid market stats, right? Thereafter, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years later, my bet is millennials will just step into the homes. Yeah, I I tend to agree with you. And it just solidified that for me when I heard you say how much money is going to be transferring. I never even thought about that argument. I was just thinking like, hey, first time home buyers. Well, maybe that helps argue against the affordability argument that we always hear, right? Well, 350 grand per person that might solve some of those problems. What are you going to do with your 350 grand? Yeah. Well, um I've I've told my parents very clearly I 
I want them to do whatever they want with their money and whatever they think is the best use of it to make the world a better place. So, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever, whatever they feel is best. Uh, I have infinite respect for my dad, my mom, um, some of the smartest, most rock solid, just incredibly intelligent people. So I'm blessed with good family, you know, and and a very tight family dynamic. But um, what I would say is a generational bet on the millennials is that, Um, as much as millennials have shown that they don't trust the system, that's very clear early on, right? As much as millennials have shown that they do want to be a part of certain things in the system, but it didn't work out for them, right? Coming of age and things like seeing 9-11, seeing the global financial crisis, seeing, you know, the Enron scandal, like these are things that were, you, you know, the coming of age for millennials, right? And then they go into the real world and it's the global financial crisis, right? So the average millennial is five years less experienced in the workplace than previous generations because, you know, they were baristas for an extra five years while the world figured out its financial, you know, so it's, it it was an undertrain, it is an undertrained generation, the millennials, but also has caught up quickly. It was the first generation to really integrate tech from the beginning of their careers. So millennials have a lot of chops as far as uh, putting old school and new school together on that. So my bet, if you're to, if to say, what would the millennials do with all this money? Because they'll inherit the majority of it. I think it's going to be a split between, I don't think most of it goes to Wall Street. I'll say that. I think it'll be a, a, you know, uh, a portion going to Wall Street. The average baby boomer portfolio, I think only has like 5 to 10% going to alternatives, aka real estate and such. I think millennials will probably two, three X that. So if you have a portion of your portfolio, let's say 10% previous generations, millennials might have 30, 40% going towards alternatives, which if you take 72 trillion, that's really interesting, Kevin. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's blowing my mind right now. Honestly, these are all, all these points that you're making. I haven't really thought of before, but you know, I don't have trust in the stock market either. Now I have a portion I do allocate there because I think diversification is smart. Um, but good gosh, if if we have rate cuts that have not been not been disclosed built into the valuation, and now you're telling me as the boomers start to die off and their estate gets the funds, they're not going to put it back in the market. That's going to be taking money out of the stock market. What does this stuff do to the value of the S&P, for example? Yeah, I mean, I am much more a professional in real estate than I am in equities. But, but, but I would say that the S&P has to return to a place where you must justify the incomes, right? Because we're not there today. We're not there today. No, you, have, you have companies like, you know, God bless Elon and his decisions with a lot of that. My understanding is you take like the Twitters, you take the Ubers, many of these companies, especially in the tech era when money was so cheap and growth was so valuable, you're getting PE ratios that were infinite, right? Many of these companies never made an actual legitimate green dollar, right? They were in the red for the entire history of these companies. And they're, well, the data we have, and and these are all valuable things, but they don't make money on the sense of just dollars and cents. So I think fundamentals will be leaning back into from the stock market, and that we'll see a lot more of real, true, rigorous analysis rather than a systemic, you know, economic wide system where we just funnel money at something saying, well, it's going to raise 10% a year or 8% a year. So that's the safest way to do that. Right. 
Right now, the system doesn't make sense with how we funnel things from individuals into the stock market. 401k is going directly to things that they'll never see or understand or be explained. I don't see that. I don't see that in the future when millennials don't trust the system as much. I think things will have to stand on their own two feet. Their freaking financial advisors are going to be millennials also, by the way. Right. So it's going to, you know, so Gen X is much less trusting of the system than previous generations also. And Gen Z doesn't even want to work as much as previous generations. So there's disruptions just in what is valuable to different generations. And uh, I see really, truly that real estate is the winner of all that because it's withstood the fundamental analysis from the beginning because it only represents five to 10% of the average person's portfolio. So yeah, that's kind of my take on it. So that's why people invest with you and invest with me because the 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 Wall Street is just so confusing. And what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me. Have, just curious, have you seen that movie, um, Dumb Money? I have not. Oh, I'm, right, I'm making a note right now. Write Dumb this money. down right now. So this just have your investors or potential investors go watch this and say, do you trust the stock market? So, the, you know, Wall Street, the Wall Streets, I'll just call them that, the suits. Mm -hmm. They call it dumb money because you and I invest. We don't know what we're doing, and we're, and we're putting money in the stock market, right? So this this movie is about the the GameStop thing, which I didn't totally understand, and I still don't. But when I watch the movie, I'm like, holy cow! You could drive up the value of something and hold it there just by just by people talking on social media. It has nothing to do with the performance of the company at all. So how do you get out of that unscathed? You know, so that's an interesting movie for what you and I do. Um, so yeah, yeah, dumb money. Definitely watch that. Okay. So we're going to go into the fixed income real quick. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing and how we get in touch with you. Yeah. I mean, the fixed income space to me and with everything we've just talked about, Kevin, there's only truly, and again, I'm biased. I'm an all in real estate guy. I'm a lifer in real estate, but there's only two ways to really, really come out ahead in where we're at today. The first is to buy assets that appreciate with inflation in hard times. So that's more of a syndication approach, bet on the appreciation of that. The other is to lean into assets that only become more rock solid with inflation and with times like that. So to me, that's the fixed income approach without question. So what we did and what we really wanted to bring to market because our investors were asking for it, they're saying, Nick, we want something with a fixed return that's more flexible that we can bet on day in and day out to pay our bills pay our expenses and really live off of as high net worth individuals. So we put together the Saint Income Fund, which is uh, right now it's over 500 mortgages that back up the Saint Income Fund. That is in over 25 states throughout the US. These are suburban white picket fence, three bed, two bath style. You know, that's kind of the middle of our fairway as far as what we're searching for. And our performance right now has been ridiculous with that because of how strong housing is. Right. So if we're buying mortgages where their rates are below market and they have, you know, on average, 39 percent equity in our portfolio, why would they ever not pay their mortgage? Right. 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 So we leaned all the way into that. Um, I still have huge, huge, huge optimism there. The uh, fundamentals there are rock solid as far as I see it. So, I mean, I just put in the last couple of months about half a million bucks in our own fund because I'm like, where else am I going to get a 12% return fixed and get my money back when, when I need it within 90 days? Yeah, I did the so, same thing. Um, it's, you know, I, I always reinvest, but I really reinvested recently. And uh, 
yeah, we're uh, we're really optimistic and, you know, never missed a distribution. The fund is killing it and we're just seeing more and more opportunity. I'm positive you're seeing uh, that we overlap with what you guys do as well at Pine. Well, look, you have you have in this. I'm, I'm going to go on a little tangent here, but this is super relevant. So you have we're told that treasuries is the safest investment you can make. Like you were told you cannot lose if you invest in treasuries. Right. It's backed by the government. What's the investment, Nick, that took down Silicon Valley Bank? I mean, yeah. right. So you're you're talking about what, what's supposed to be safe is not safe at all, especially when the, the government can actually manipulate it and bring the value of those down. So for the listener, when you have a fixed fixed return asset and it's especially let's say it's one percent like a, you might get with the Treasury and then all of a sudden they're issuing treasuries at four percent or five percent. Why would anybody want to buy your one percent Treasury? Um, and if you have to sell it like like Silicon Valley Bank had to liquidate, right? So when you have to sell it, you have to discount that to get your four to 5%, which is what the market is demanding. So it's not a safe investment at all. I absolutely agree with everything you're saying, Nick, real estate is the safe investment. So to your question, are we seeing what we're seeing in the market? We're seeing more borrowers because we have tight credit standards banks aren't lending and we're seeing more investors because they don't trust wall street one and because they know treasuries are not safe. So we're seeing more of both come into our company. Absolutely. And it's, it's a good market right now. Things surround. I mean, what was it? How long ago was it that Blackstone just put 60 billion into single family? Right. I mean, there's, it's a rock solid asset class. Right. We like the debt side of it specifically because it allows us to offer fixed returns, right. right? So we get to do the same thing. You know, we get to bet on the same asset class as institutional players and offer fixed income products to people, you know, families, individuals in the retirement phases, um, you know, entrepreneurs. We work a lot with entrepreneurs that have these businesses, highs and lows. They just need something rock solid and steady. So I'm positive you're seeing a lot of the same. But um, I've never been more optimistic about the next 20 years of single family. Yeah, I love it. And so a lot of what we talked about today. So I'm in, I'm in agreement with you. I agree that inflation is, is here to stay um, for some of the reasons we talked about. I agree that housing is super safe. We have an inventory problem that there's no end in sight. So that's going to hold value steady. Um, agreeing with you that Wall Street's, uh, who knows what's going to actually happen. You brought you enlightened me big time with the uh the transfer of wealth. Um, but I also Nick, got from this, you're, what separates you from everybody else is your goals. Like it, we hear it all the time, your big why. So you even said, what's the reason you're in this, right? I think that was your quote. Um, you like to niche down to find your target. So we talk a lot on the show about educating our audience and using that to market ourselves. So podcasts, YouTubes, this, the, you know, what we're doing, seminars, you do all of that. And your focus was niching down. So you target the higher net worth um, and you do that by economic um, education. Um, and then yeah, I just wrote down here, inflation is here to stay. So get used to it, man. So that's that's what I got from this episode. Anything you want to add before you share your contact info? Uh, you no, know, I think you nailed it, Kevin. I really enjoyed the episode. I mean, it's always great hanging out with you. I, you understand the space that we play in also. So it's good to you know see what you guys are up to. And most of all, talk economics and strategy here. That's like my favorite things to go through. And hopefully the audience too. could uh, pick up a lot there because I know you're a wealth of information. and We put a lot of resources to making sure we're up to date on the most cutting edge of the economic side. 
Well, I really, really appreciate your time. I know you mentioned that you get invited back on podcasts a lot and I could see why, because this stuff is so fluid, right? So it's like, you're trying to stay on top of this. So um, I'm going to, in, I'm going to um, invite you back on. I'd love to have you yeah. back on because there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about and we just don't have time, man, because like I could talk about this for a day, right? So this has been fantastic. How do we get a hold of you? Yeah, the best, best, best way that I can add value to you and the audience from here, saintinvestment.com slash resources. It's all the education that we kind of talked about here, literally in live webinars and replays of webinars. You'll see the Q&As. We're doing tons of videos on strategies of how to invest during weird times, the economics of what's coming up, the best strategies through those things. And then uh, also saintinvestment.com if you want to learn more about our fund, our fixed income fund. We're paying uh, our highest level product right now pays 14.28% fixed returns. So pretty competitive and pretty interesting right now. That's amazing. So you're a, so you're a 506 C probably. Correct. We yes. can only work with accredited investors, but if someone, even if someone's not accredited, we're like, let's connect because our goal is to get you to make as much money as possible so that you can invest with, you know, whatever you find best in the future. Yeah, that's fantastic. So those are strong returns. Obviously we're not promoting anything. You do your own sure. diligence. Um, we're, we're, so, you know, Nick, we have a reg a, so we do very similar what you're doing, but we accept non-accredited also. So that's, Amazing. that's an adva uh, advantage to the reg a, but it's a lot, a lot of freaking work, man. To say God bless you and your team <laughs> with the lift, Kevin, that is a lot of work for sure. Yeah. Yeah, we just want to help as many people as we can. So similar to what you said, you want to make a difference. That's what we're trying to do here too. So definitely check out Nick. We're going to put it in the show notes, all of his contact information. Go contact or connect with him. Um, and I'm going to just close with this. You know, I really appreciate everything. Again, Nick, you were one of the best we've had because it's so current, the information. And, and you've done such a fantastic job with Saint um, and your your raises and your mortgage purchasing and all of that. So I'd love to have you back. Um, Way to go. And for the listener, thank you so much for tuning in. And I hope you make this day a great one. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. If you did, please be sure to follow and leave us a review. Oh yeah. And tell a friend.